Hey, welcome to the podcast M&A War Stories. You're joined by your hosts, Robert Heaton and Toby Tester. Each week, we walk through our experiences of M&A projects where we've been involved and we unpack the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our purpose is simply to leave you with valuable lessons that you can use in your M&A projects. And so let's not waste any more time and get this podcast underway. Hey, Toby, good morning. How are you? Good, Robert. How are you going? I am doing well, and I'm not going to ask you anything about weather in Sydney because you're always better off than we are anyway. So, Colonel uh, Sunshine. Thank you. <laughs> We've got a couple of interesting topics today, and I've also got a guest joining us. We've got Daniel Levy. Daniel is a director of Kidder Williams, and Kidder Williams are a corporate advisory and investment banking services company. Daniel's based here in Melbourne, and they actually get involved at all stages of deals. They get involved in buy side for clients, they get involved in sell side, they get involved in mergers and capital raising. So Daniel's life certainly is never boring. He's got some interesting comments to uh, to make about some of his experiences. So uh, I'm going to shut up and say no more than introduce Daniel. And Daniel, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rob. Great to be on the podcast. So one of the topics that Daniel's going to talk about is the importance of corporate governance to a successful transaction. Daniel, you've had some experiences and some commentary to make on that. So most people would say, yes, of course, it's important to successful transactions. But give us some specific insights from your point of view. Uh, Look, Rob, it's a very interesting question, the impact of corporate governance on an M&A transaction. And I think the reason why I mentioned that to you when we spoke earlier is because it's not something that people would immediately think about when they're thinking about key M&A drivers. But unfortunately, I've been involved with a number of M&A transactions where corporate governance has actually almost blown up the deal. Time permitting, it's not possible to run through all of them, but the one that particularly stands out was the case involving a processing business that we were selling. And it appeared for all intents and purposes to have some really good corporate governance in place for a privately owned business, although it was decent in terms of size. There were monthly board meetings. There was an independent chairman who chaired the meeting. Monthly board packs were prepared and there were minutes of those monthly board meetings. So that gave us some comfort, at least when we were setting up the the data room. We introduced a very large multinational Asian trade player who wanted to buy this business. And their modus operandi of this acquirer was to undertake, rather than the normal, let's say, three years of due diligence, five years of due diligence on any acquisition candidate that it was assessing at the time. So one of the things they asked for was five years of board packs and board minutes. So we thought, well, we're going to be well prepared for that, given the, the apparent good state of my client's corporate governance. Part of our role is to review any information before it's provided to a potential acquirer. And when we started reviewing all those board packs and board minutes, we were flabbergasted with what we saw and what we read. There were racist comments about an ethnic minority that was working in the, the factory, how they were lazy, untrustworthy and shouldn't be employed. There were allusions to attempted insurance fraud. And we don't know whether the comments in the minutes were a joke or whether it was a real intention to try and defraud their insurance company in order to get uh, an upgrade for their, um, their computer software and equipment. 
there were the CFO's own views about how the factory was unsafe and didn't meet OH&S requirements. There were comments about the poor morale amongst the staff. There were even the CFO's own musings about how the, the economy was going down the toilet and the business would be in a, in a pretty poor shape in the near term. So we documented all of these comments, which really filled up probably every fourth line over 100 documents. And we brought all those items to the attention of the CEO and he claimed ignorance of each one. And he said, well, look, first of all, I was not aware of any of these comments. Second of all, none of them are, are true. And so we asked him the question about, well, how did they get in the, the documentation, the board packs and the minutes in the first place? And it turned out that the CFO was absolutely useless. No one took him seriously. And as a result, he was totally ignored when it came to his detailed board packs because no one thought they were worth reading. So we had no choice but to redact all these comments out of the, the board packs and the minutes before providing them to the bidder, which we did. And I think it took only 15 minutes after uploading these redacted documents to the data room that the potential acquirer gave us a call and said, well, what, what's the story with these blacked out board minutes and board packs? Daniel, this uh, sounds absolutely extraordinary. I'm, I'm listening to this, and um, I'm, I'm, I have to be honest, I'm somewhat flabbergasted. So you mean to say the board packs had all this racist, illegal comments and all sorts of things? And was it the CFO who is primarily the one who is allowing all this to go in and, and was talking about these things in the board meetings? Yeah, that, that's right. And the problem was that none of the directors, none of the shareholders attending the meeting, the managing director himself wasn't reviewing this documentation because they, they didn't think it was worth their while. So it gets locked into a permanent record and you can't go back and doctor the minutes. You've got no choice but to block it out. So we're in this situation where we then had to explain the fact that one out of every four lines was blacked out and the acquirer said, well, if you can't tell me what's there, I'm going to assume the worst. I'm going to assume there's something very bad there that you're looking to hide from me, and I'm not sure if I want to proceed. And so that our solution was simple. We disclosed off the record verbally what the comments were. The acquirer had a laugh and, to our very good fortune, decided to proceed. But it could have easily gone the other way. Wow. So the acquirer did decide to proceed in this particular case? They, they did decide to proceed, but there were a lot of interesting things to come out of that. A lot of them are obvious. If, if my client had had a decent CFO, had the right people in place, it wouldn't have happened. If they'd had some clear protocols and guidelines for who was preparing what within the organisation and who was overseeing whom, they would have got to that. Wow. And the other point, which is critical, especially for businesses looking to potentially sell in the near term, is that they really should have assumed that anything in writing is potentially going to be reviewed by a potential acquirer up to yes. five years prior to a transaction. Wow. I mean, I must admit, this, this smacks me as being pretty darn unprofessional, obviously, on the CFO, and, and, and more broadly speaking, in terms of the importance of corporate governance. It's a serious exercise, and I have to be honest, I've never heard anything like this before, so it sounds extraordinary. We had another case where... A client actually did the opposite. They doctored the minutes, didn't tell us about it, and the buyer got their hands on, inadvertently, both sets of documents. Right. The lawyers found out about it. Well, the client fessed up to us. We spoke to our lawyers. Our lawyers almost pulled out of the transaction, claiming that it was fraudulent and misleading. It's deceptive behaviour. We, we found a solution 
But again, that could have easily blown up the deal if the acquirer had realised that my client was doctoring information provided to them as part of the due diligence. You know, I've got to add a comment in there as well, but Toby, you and I have talked about this before. You go into most large corporates, and of course, corporate governance is something that they treat extremely seriously. But by the same token, particularly family-run businesses can sometimes be a bit lapse in that area. And so what Daniel's talking about here is extreme and certainly very unprofessional. It, it is a fact of the matter that, that some companies just don't treat corporate governance seriously enough. And it comes back to bite you when, when you get into a transaction like this. Indeed, yes. Well, if there's any kind of situation where you need to corporatize an organization... So um, with family-run businesses, no buyer is going to be serious unless you actually got a robust transactable type business with governance in place. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think, Daniel, if you'll allow me to just summarize what you, you've said in this in terms of the key takeouts, I think what I heard from you was, first of all, you need to make sure that you've got the right people in the business. In, in your case, the financial controller or CFO they need to be professional people who understand the importance of corporate governance. And within the transaction, you've also said, let's be clear about who's preparing what information and who's overseeing that to make sure that it's the appropriate quality and the appropriate content before it goes to other parties. And then I think the third thing that you've said is, Assume that any documentation over a three or five year period is likely to be reviewed by a potential buyer. And and so this isn't just something you can clean up in the last 10 minutes. It's got to be a practice that you adopt across the business permanently. Is that a good summary? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a very good summary, Rob. And it's to, to your point, I think it's something that you need to address several years in advance. You can't clean up those comments other than putting a black line through them. Once they're already there, that needs to be fixed so that the problem is not occurring in the first place. And you can only deal with that three, four years in advance of undertaking a transaction, if you're looking to sell your business, that is. I suppose it's, I've just thought of a, a funny analogy. It's a bit like being stopped by the police for speeding and they've, they've caught you speeding at 100 you know, kilometres an hour and your defence is, well, I, I was only doing 60 kilometres 20 minutes ago. You can't go backwards. That's now, it. we might move on because the other topic that you were talking about, Daniel, and I know when you and I spoke about this, was the question that says, does the quality of financial information impact valuation? Uh, And again, I think most people would sort of sit there and go, yeah. But again, you've got some stories and some thoughts on that. So perhaps you want to talk about that one as well, please, Daniel. Sure. Look, it's one of one of my biggest bugbears is the quality of financial information that my clients have, especially if we're looking to sell their, their business becomes critical. And unfortunately, there is a, a real linear correlation between the quality of financial information and valuation. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to is what price can we get for a business? And I wish many of my clients in, in the past had paid more attention to the quality of their financial information. One of the worst cases that I can recall and saddest cases was that we were selling a business that had stock. So for all intents and purposes, it was a manufacturing business. 
but their accounting policy for stock was wrong, materially so. And without going into too much of the detail, this became quite a surprise because the company was audited by a decent-sized firm. The CFO seemed reasonably intelligent and experienced. But what ended up happening was in the middle of the financial year, not the beginning or the end, but in the middle of the financial year, so from 1 January, the company decided to change its policy for stock. So to give you an example, let's just say the pen in front of you would normally cost a dollar to, to make. Well, my client was imputing all these administrative costs into their stock so that on their books, the cost of each pen was, let's say, $6 per pen, whereas it really should have been booked at, at a dollar. So the accounting policy changed in the middle of the financial year. The first problem was that we then had the previous year's financial information, the current year's financial information, and the, the next year's forecast financial information were all prepared on a different basis, so they weren't comparable. So part of our job was to try and right-size the numbers, put them all on a comparable basis so we could present them to bidders. And when we did that, it turned out that the current year financials, let's say the reported EBITDA or earnings were $20 million, were more like $30 million. So there was about a 50% misstatement in the numbers. So if the accounting policy had been correct from day one, the reported earnings would have been 30 instead of 20. So what we did in our information memorandum, we had no choice but to show an adjustment, a correction to account for the change in accounting policy to the extent of $10 million. Now, given the order of magnitude, it was no surprise that all the bidders, and we had a number, totally discounted it and gave us an offer based on the actual reported numbers rather than our what appeared to be conveniently inflated numbers, although we knew that they were correct and we, we had the work papers to prove it. This type of business was typically valued at about six times EBITDA. So in essence, my client lost $60 million of value simply because they had the wrong accounting policy in place. It's quite sad. I can give you a number of other examples where quality of financial information has also impacted on valuation. Whether it's a company that has been overly aggressive with its forecasts, and we've had a number of clients like that, and in the end, buyers begin to lose faith in management, because they've put the numbers together, lose faith in the business and lose faith in the sale process. And by the same token, we've had clients who have been overly conservative in their in their forecasts and each year they've overshot their budgets by 20%. We're not sure whether it was to ensure management got a bonus or simply because the CFO wanted to show how conservative he was. But in each case, it caused issues because in the year that we went to market with the business that was conservative in its budget, none of the bidders could believe that the, the current year budgets were conservative because who would prepare a conservative budget when you're about to go to market? There's a whole litany of issues you, you highlighted there, Daniel. It's, it's fascinating. It all comes down to the quality of financial information. And obviously these things happened and Obviously, these businesses didn't get the, the value that they would hope to get. I mean, with all of this, what would you say are the sort of the key things that organizations need to be aware of when it comes to preparing financials? Before we do that, there's, I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to what Daniel's saying there. And what I can't get out of my head is this, again, comes down to a competence thing, doesn't it? Because for a CFO to allow that sort of adjustment on inventory, mid-year and and the size of the impact that that had on the valuation of the business i mean to use a common australian phrase 
Blind Freddy could have seen that coming. It's So it does come down to capability, competency of the people that are actually preparing that financial information in the first place. But anyway, Daniel, I don't want to steal your thunder. What, are, what do you say with the takeaways there? Not at all. I totally agree. Look, it, it, again, it comes down to competence. In each of those cases, a good quality CFO or financial controller, we would have been in a different situation. A lot of my clients employ auditors, and that can help, but it's critical that you appoint the right one. Otherwise, the audit opinion doesn't necessarily mean much. And one thing that I think is overlooked, and it comes down to assume all documentation is going to be reviewed up to five years before a transaction, is that clients are really going to take their budgeting seriously as budgeting accuracy will be reviewed by potential acquirers going several years back. I think that, for me, summarises the whole thing. If I can think about both of the examples, both on the governance and the quality of financial information, there's, there's a couple of things standing out. I mean, for me, first of all, you need to make sure that you've got the right people doing this, professionals who really understand what needs to be presented But the real takeaway for me is that this can't be something that you prepare six months before you go for sale. You've got to be practicing years before because discovery for most acquisitions can be three to five years and people will be severely critical of poor practices bad budgeting, incorrect forecasts, wrong stock valuations. It it all comes down to the fact that there's some serious money to be lost if you don't take a professional approach to this. And I think the one thing I would say, uh, and this is where I think Kidder Williams excel, is if you're a business owner and you think that three to five years down the track, you may be looking to get out and to sell your business, Don't wait till three to five years. Now is the time to start at least taking advice on how you should prepare for that transaction. That's my summary, Toby. Oh, no, in actual fact, I agree with what you said there, Robert. It it is fascinating. And of course, it does come down to having good quality earnings and having that for a number of years before you go to market. Otherwise, you're going to get beaten down. And so it is absolutely key. But of course, it's also key that you have an effective board and a board that's actually overseeing management and can keep management in check and act as those moderators as they should do. So I see this as a failure in management, but also a failure in the board as well, in the board function. Yeah, absolutely, because what it tells you is that there's a management team and a leadership team there, and this is passed by all of them. Yes. So it's not just one individual at fault, it's the leadership team per se in these cases that have allowed this situation to take place. And that's a whole scenario because at the end of the day, their actions are actually impacting the business value by several millions of dollars. And, and mm. that's just that's just sad. Daniel, have you got any other closing comments you'd like to make? No, Rob, look, I can't underscore enough what, what you said earlier, which is really the, the heart of this is that if someone's looking to undertake an M&A transaction, particularly if they're looking to sell their business, they need to start preparing several years in advance. This is not something that you can address six months or even 12 months before, because what's cast in stone is what you've got to work with. And that's yep. whether it's documentation or management, quality of personnel, capability, etc. 
And look, I'm just going to give a shout to a podcast Toby and I did last week because the byline for that podcast was preparation, preparation, preparation. And here we are talking about a similar topic. Daniel, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast this week. Thank you so much for your insights about corporate governance and the quality of financial information. I'm sure there's some great stuff there that our listeners can take away. And I think the message is prepare early. Thanks very much, Rob. It's been great being on the podcast. We, of course, will be back next week with another podcast from M&A War Stories. And so that just leaves me now to say bye for now. 